You are Locked On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12s. I'm Corbin Smith, your host for Locked On Seahawks, along with Nick Lee. Happy Tuesday to all of our listeners. We've got a loaded show for you on tap, tons of news to cover, and of course, the playoffs are looming. We're going to dive deep into all the potential scenarios later in the show. Now for your lead story here on Locked On Seahawks. The Josh Gordon era is unfortunately over after just five games. This news broke shortly after I did yesterday's podcast. Didn't get a chance to reflect on it during our Monday show. But Nick, this is not a case where I want to say I told you so because of the circumstances. Nobody wanted to see Gordon make this work more than I did. But this just, it should not be surprising given his history. No, uh, surprising it is not. Disappointing, of course, it is. It, he, he was suspended seven times previously, six times by the league, once by the Browns. And he, he's been battling these demons his entire NFL career, and it's really unfortunate. And for me, uh, it, it sucks. The, the Seahawks really did not I'm, not... I'm not really mad for the Seahawks that they lost all this money or all this stuff. It, it wasn't a huge risk on the Seahawks' side. He wasn't a locker room cancer. He wasn't... Uh, a high-priced free agent. His teammates seem to like him. The media seem to like him. Um, the only victim of him, of the crimes really are is himself and perhaps the Seahawks moving forward if they wanted to include him more on the offense. But the, the Seahawks were good before him, and they, they were, they're going to be good long after him. He only caught seven passes for 139, and, and actually that's, only th- that's three yards more than Brandon Marshall had in his short Seahawks tenure. And I said if he exceeded Marshall, Marshall's tenure in Seattle, it was a success. And really... When you count his critical catches with the 49 in the 49ers game, that really kind of maybe helped turn the tide there, and and also that amazing catch against Carolina on Sunday, the diving grab, which could possibly be his last catch in the NFL. So that's not a bad way to go out. I have no hard feelings toward him. You got to feel for him for sure. I sympathize with him in his situation. I know he's had some some demons and some and some tough times, especially recently in, in his family. It's just been it's just overall a tough thing. But the Seahawks didn't wage a huge risk here, so I'm not devastated. No, I don't think anybody can point to the Seahawks and say that they made a bad decision. I mean, clearly other teams were scared because of his history. There's a reason the Seahawks were the only team that put a claim in on him and they were awarded him off waivers from the Patriots. And I'm sure there will be some people that will be upset with the way that I'm wording this, but it's completely acceptable. I think that you can be empathetic for Josh Gordon's situation, as I am. I've said this numerous times in the show. Before they even put a claim in on him, and we were just talking about whether they should or not, I was making the argument that they shouldn't, and it was not because of talent. It had nothing to do with the young man either. Everything I had heard was that he was a really good human being, and he was respectable. He put in the work at practice. All those things were quality. The problem was... There was just too much of a lengthy history with him uh, with substance abuse for me to think that it was worthwhile because I just I didn't trust that he was going to be able to stay out of trouble, and unfortunately, he wasn't able to. So I think you can be empathetic for the situation, and I really feel bad for him. I, I really want him to get his life together. That's what really matters here, not football. Getting his life together, getting it on track. He's just constantly been battling these demons. I think you can still be empathetic and also be disappointed in the situation because he was starting to really figure things out for the Seahawks. He had given them, like you said, 
He only had seven receptions, but but two of them were key first down pickups in that 49ers game that if they don't have those, they probably don't win that game. And then the catch that he had in Carolina the other day was just fantastic. He had a couple other first down receptions. It seemed like every time he had the ball in his hands, except for that interception he threw on Sunday, uh, every time he had the football in his hands, he made something good happen. And it's just unfortunate that things didn't work out, especially when you consider that it seemed like he was really hitting it off in Seattle. The players, the coaches loved having him around. There was discussion last week about we'd like to bring him back potentially after 2019. And from the sounds of it, the Seahawks are going to do whatever they can, which honestly is not much. He's got to stay away from the team and the facility now that he's suspended. But they're going to try to offer whatever support they can. I'm not going to sit here and rule out the possibility that before 2020, the Seahawks could consider, because he's going to be cheap to re-sign for a new contract given his circumstances. I'm not going to rule out the possibility they could try to give him another opportunity, but I'd say that it's still pretty slim given the fact that he was only able to last five games before th- this latest suspension. And who knows if he's even going to get reinstated again. At some point, the NFL is going to say, Josh, we've given you a million chances and you've blown it. We're just not going to reinstate you. And I wouldn't be surprised if that happens this time around. I honestly am expecting that to happen. I'm, I unfortunately, um, it's quite possible. In fact, I think that that was his last catch in the NFL, which again, that's not a bad way to go out, but you, I, I feel bad for him and the Seahawks are going to be fine without him. And they're going to find, they're going to find those catches somewhere. Jacob Hollister has emerged as a good pass catcher. I think David Moore and, and Jerome Brown are, are there waiting in the wings. Maybe a guy named like John Ursula comes around. I don't know. Um, they, they have several um, options there. So I, I don't think the Seahawks – I'm not going to sit here and say that the Seahawks are now doomed and that they won't win the division. They won't get far in the playoffs all because Josh Gordon got suspended. I don't see that happening. I, I hope the kid, the kid gets better as human to human. And also, yeah, if, if they do reinstate him in 2020, I'm absolutely on board to give him a minimum zero-risk deal because it seems like the two sides like each other. Um, but I honestly just got – knee-jerk reaction I do not see him getting reinstated next year I think this might have been his final strike unfortunately looking from a football perspective and again to me football doesn't matter in this situation just getting his life together is what really matters here but if you are looking from a football perspective he only had one game in the five that he dressed for the Seahawks that he played more than 37 percent of Seattle's offensive snaps so it's not like you're replacing one of your top couple receivers they envisioned him having a big impact and he made some things happen with the limited targets that he had Uh, but I don't envision this being something that's just going to completely derail their receiving core. They've still got plenty of guys there. Pete Carroll talked about it yesterday. They're confident in the group they had. They had seven guys, seven receivers that dressed for that game against Carolina. So they're confident in the group, and I wouldn't be expecting they're going to be bringing Antonio Brown in. I know there was reports out there that they were (laughs) kicking that around, but you and I have both already made our Uh. thoughts clear on that. I don't anticipate Seattle's going to do that, especially since he is still not out of the woods with his own legal issues. I'll take five Josh Gordons over Antonio Brown. Five. Exactly. You don't have the, you know you don't have the locker room baggage that comes with Antonio Brown. So I'm not going to say that it's impossible just because Seattle has been rumored to be linked to him a couple times, but I find it very hard to believe they're going to go that direction. They like the group that they have. One other big news story here, a little bit more positive than the one that we just broke down here, but the NFL released both Pro Bowl rosters this afternoon. Russell Wilson and Bobby Wagner are the only two Seahawks that make the roster. There were seven alternates. Tyler Lockett, Chris Carson, Dwayne Brown, Mike Upati, Jadevian Clowney, Shaquille Griffin, and Quandre Diggs. But 
at 11-3, and three, the number one seed right now in the NFC, only having two Pro Bowlers. They only had three last year and they made the playoffs. It's just really surprising to me, especially with how avid the fan base is, with this being a vote-heavy uh, process, that you're only getting two Seahawks on the roster. Yeah, uh, having two Pro Bowlers on an 11-3 and three team while the Ravens have 12 on their team. I know, given the Ravens are probably the Super Bowl frontrunner right now. They are, but that's a joke, okay? Two Pro Bowlers from an 11-3 and three team? You're telling me that there's only two players worthy of Pro Bowl consideration on an 11-3 and three number one seed in the NFC? Give me a break. I understand that the room is pretty crowded for Chris Carson with, you know, Christian McCaffrey, who we just saw, Zeke Elliott, Dalvin Cook. That's kind of a crowded room of NFC running backs, which I, I understand. But Tyler Lockett probably definitely cost himself in those last two games. Dwayne Brown, I think, is one of the more respectable tackles in the league. Jadeveon Clowney, with with just the impact he made in the, in the Sunday night game against, or excuse me, the Monday night game against the Niners, but alone with that in his name. Uh, Shaquille Griffin, I think we both agree, is playing the best football of the Seahawks' career. Quandre Diggs changed the whole secondary when he came in. So a lot of a lot of really good cases there. But I think it's an absolute joke that only two of them became <clears throat> Pro Bowlers. And I'm hoping that a couple, maybe one or two more sneak in with injuries or or dropouts here. But um, there's also another one that uh, we both agree that wasn't even an alternate. That might be the biggest snub. And I'm working on an article right now. Stay tuned. Um, KJ Wright is playing maybe the best football he's had he's done in years at his age and didn't even make an alternate which makes me upset it's ironic it's ironic because KJ Wright played in five games last year and he was an alternate for the Pro Bowl last year and then this year he's played in every game he had a two interception game against the Panthers we'll talk about that more later in the show uh he's already eclipsed 100 tackles for the season. I mean, it speaks volumes to how dumb this process is, really. It really it really does. I mean, obviously, kind of, you know, it's fitting that the Pro Bowl, the game itself, is a joke, so the voting process is a joke. And these guys still get paid a bonus, so it's worth it from that standpoint. But certainly, Pro Bowl is not all pro. Those are two totally different discussions in terms of legitimacy. Still a resume builder, though. Exactly. I mean, it's still something that you want to put on your resume, and for... People like Russell Wilson and Bobby Wagner. Wilson now has been to seven of these, and that's an outstanding accomplishment. Bobby Wagner, this is his sixth straight Pro Bowl, and both those guys obviously more than deserving, but it is just crazy to me that a team that's 11-3 and three would only get those two players in, and it's even more crazy to me. I mean, no offense to Mike Upati. He's had some nice games for them. He's been a respectable guard. He's stayed healthy, knock on wood, uh, but... How is he on that list, and then K.J. Wright is not? That's a little bit mind-numbing to me that K.J. Wright's not in there. And again, it just points to the process. There's got to be a more legitimate way to do that. But at the same time, it's kind of fitting because the game itself is kind of a joke at this point. If you're a Spotify listener, use Spotify Wrapped to show us your top Locked On podcast for the year. Take a screenshot and tag us at Locked On Live and the host or show Twitter account on Twitter, and we will share and retweet. When we return, there's only two weeks left to play, but there's so much still at stake in the NFC playoff picture. Nick and I will recap where Seattle stands and what they'll look to accomplish in the final two weeks of the season. You're listening to Locked On Seahawks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. 
Welcome back to Locked On Seahawks. I'm your host, Corbin Smith, along with Nick Lee. The Seahawks picking up their 11th victory of the season in Carolina on Sunday. Later in the third quarter, Nick and I will break down what we saw on defense. The good, the bad, and the ugly. There were certainly plenty of things that fit under all three of those categories. So we'll recap that in the third quarter. But first, as Jim Mora once said, we're going to talk playoffs? Playoffs? The Seahawks have officially clinched a playoff spot. It's their eighth trip to the playoffs in 10 seasons under Pete Carroll. Quite an accomplishment. No team outside of New England and Green Bay can say that in the last decade. This is one of the premier franchises in the NFL. Pete Carroll and John Schneider have done such a great job of building a consistent winner in the Pacific Northwest. But Nick, this year is different than last season. Last year, it was a team that a lot of people were writing off. They're going to win four or five games, and then they go out and they make the playoffs. They win 10 games. That was quite a season considering all the changes they had. This year, those expectations were not enough. They you know, Just making the playoffs is not going to be enough for this team. They want to get another division title, and it's going to be a dogfight to get it. Yeah, and it's they're kind of a victim of their own success that now that they're 11 and 3, honestly, if we were sitting here 3 4 months ago and you told me that the Seahawks would be 11 and 3, I would have fallen out of my chair. But now that they are 11 and 3, this the expectation is win your division, get a playoff bye and and play a couple playoff home games. And so now that that expectation is there, so anything less than that would be disappointing at this point, which I understand. Um but yeah, they have the first seed and in order to hold on to that, it's not super complicated. They need to win out and either have New Orleans lose once or Green Bay and New Orleans each win out. Uh, that's kind of a little bit confusing. But really for me, and we're going to go through some scenarios here, but you, you always want to be in that position in mid-December where you control your own destiny. And the Seahawks absolutely do that. They win out. They are at worst division champs and get a first round bye as a two seed and host playoff games. So that's at worst if you win out. So you win your last two games, you take care of business. You lose either of these next two games, especially one against the Cardinals, you're really putting yourself at the at the mercy of division and conference rivals, and you no longer control your own destiny. So when we when we go through these scenarios, just remember, they win these games, they, they take all the mystery out of it. Yeah, that's the key, because when you're looking at tiebreakers, and I was crunching these numbers this morning, and quite frankly, I developed one of the worst headaches I think I've ever had in my life, which is saying something, but there's so many numbers that you're throwing around, because when you go further and further down the line looking at all the tiebreakers, it's really easy when you first start looking at it. They have a tiebreaker procedure to determine division winners and seeding when it's a two-horse race like Seattle and San Francisco. You start with the head-to-head matchups. If Seattle wins in Week 17, then they've swept the season series they're clearly going to win the division then you have the divisional record then common opponents then conference record those are all easy to find out but if all four of those are tied then it goes to what's called strength of victory and i learned more and more about this today just how difficult this is and and what strength of victory is for our listeners i wrote an article about this this morning and crunched a bunch of numbers And a lot of people were responding saying, hey, this was a great article. I still don't understand. So I'm going to try to explain it to the best of my ability here. Strength of victory has to do with the number of wins by teams that you defeat. So in the Seahawks case right now, they have 11 wins. Those 11 teams that they have defeated have combined to win 72 games this year. So that's their strength of victory. The 49ers, their 11 wins, their opponents 
have had 68 victories. So Seattle currently has the edge here. And here's the problem, though. The Seahawks and 49ers play in Week 17. If the 49ers win that game, they add 12 wins. And that's assuming the Seahawks beat the Cardinals, which obviously we can't make that assumption based on the past. But let's just say that they do. That's a 12-win addition to the 49ers. So they would go from 69 uh, wins by opponent, or 68 wins by opponents. It would jump them up to 80 just getting those 12 victories. And so if the Seahawks are trying to play that battle where they have to depend on that strength of victory to get a division title after losing to the 49ers, and all this is bearing on the 49ers losing to the Rams, by the way. If they beat the Rams on Saturday night, then Seattle, you better win in Week 17 or you're going to be a wildcard team. You are not winning the division. So this is all bearing on the Rams coming through and bouncing back from that ugly performance against the Cowboys playing like they did against the Seahawks two weeks ago and then beating the 49ers. If that happens, that opens the door for the Seahawks in Week 17 to potentially be able to still win the division even if they lose to the 49ers. But most scenarios are going to have San Francisco winning the division regardless of what happens on Saturday against the Rams. So again, we can keep looking at all these different scenarios, but if the Seahawks just want to make it easy on themselves... Just go win the two games, win the division, and finish 13-3. and three. And like you said, at worst, you're the number two seed and you get a week off to get healthy on defense. And, and we all know that this, like you mentioned, the game against the Cardinals, there that is no guarantee because the Cardinals know how to beat the Seahawks in Seattle, especially late in the year when these games mean something still. And, and if you lose to the Cardinals, you have no right to complain about where you are in the playoffs. You, you're just, you should just be glad to be there. And, and so they, they wave, the Seahawks wave their right to complain about their playoff spot if they lose to the Cardinals. So first, of course, you got to take, take care of business against the Cardinals and, and let the chips fall where they may otherwise. You have, like, like you saw last Sunday, things all of a sudden lined up, Mercury, Venus, and Mars all lined up perfectly, and the Seahawks all of a sudden are now the first in the NFC, or NFC thanks to some losses, and thank you, Falcons, and uh, thank you, Cowboys, for that. <laughs> Um, but it, it's it's going to be get more complicated if you lose games. But they have a chance to settle this on the field. There's no rankings. There's no committee like college football. Settle it on the field. They lose one of these two games, then that you, you they honestly, if you lose to the Cardinals, you don't deserve to be division champs. But that that game means everything for for week 16. Then of course that you got to be one and zero in week 16 before you move on to 17. But this is just fun, isn't it? This is this is what you just live for as, as you, you a want to be having fan. this conversation. Yeah, Absolutely. you want to be talking about this this time of year. And and I guess I'm going to dive into this to torment myself because you know we just talked about how Seattle can just make it easy on everybody by winning the first two games. But this is how in depth that I went this morning. I was trying to look because I had some people arguing with me on Twitter. They were trying to say there is a scenario where the Seahawks can clinch the NFC West in week 16. I am here to tell you that that is false. That is a lie. Somebody is spreading fallacies on the internet. That is not true. Now, if the 49ers lose to the Rams, that certainly helps the Seahawks. And and then you have the whole non-common opponent thing that we have to consider here. The teams that could really help the Seahawks by having strong finishes here that would help with that strength of victory aspect, get more wins on there. The Vikings, who the Seahawks already beat, the Philadelphia Eagles, 
who could still win their division. They could play the Cowboys this weekend. If they win, that helps the Seahawks out in that category. And then the Falcons, who just beat the 49ers, if the Falcons can finish strong and win their last couple games, those are some extra victories they can add to that strength of victory metric that would help them in case they lose to the 49ers in Week 17. But regardless of the scenario, I punch these numbers in, Nick. This is what the Seahawks beating the Cardinals and the Rams beating the 49ers. This would be a perfect situation for the Seattle Seahawks. The Tennessee Titans upset the Saints, so that's not a win that goes on the 49ers' SOV, their strength of victory, because they already beat the Saints. They wouldn't get that extra win. The Vikings beat the Packers, so Seattle gets that extra win. The Eagles beat the Cowboys. The Giants beat the Redskins, which means the Redskins, a team the 49ers beat, wouldn't be helping their strength of victory either. And of course, the Falcons beating the Jaguars, another win that can be added to Seattle's strength of victory. With all of those considered, they would be at 80, and the 49ers would only be at 69. So they would have some wiggle room there. But even with that, they still wouldn't clinch the NFC West because then I plugged in the worst scenario that could happen in Week 17, and that includes the Giants beating the Eagles, the Buccaneers beating the Falcons, the Saints beating the Panthers, the Bears beating the Vikings, and the Redskins beating the Cowboys. If all those things happen and the 49ers beat the Seahawks, they would have 83 wins on their strength of victory. Seattle would have 82. So the 49ers are still division champions. So with that being a possibility, you can't mathematically say the Seahawks clinched the NFC West in Week 16. If I blew everyone's mind there, I'm, a, I'm sorry. I do have an article on Seahawk Maven that you can check out where I tried to explain it a bit more and I had diagrams you can look at. Uh, but there is no physical way the Seahawks can win the NFC West in Week 16. Week 17, on the other hand, uh, before their game, especially if they get flexed to primetime, as you and I expect, Nick, there are some ways that before that game that they mathematically could eliminate the 49ers from winning the division, regardless of outcome. Well, props to you, Corbin. You you really do work your butt off on these articles. And yeah, check that article out. It is, I'm going to be honest, I did not know much about this either until you started diving into this. And wow, yeah. It's, it's really it's, interesting. It's I, it's it just, is interesting, yeah. It's just extremely, it's extremely complicated. You know what? Let's dive in real quick. I know you want to chat, but you can give me some thoughts on this, but just to look at what would have to happen, this is just one case. There's there's multiple games that could play out differently that could still lead to the same result. But for the Seahawks to win the NFC West before they take the field in Week 17 against the 49ers, if they were the night game as we expect, they would still have the same scenarios that I just said in Week 16. The Rams, Titans, Vikings, Eagles, Giants, and Falcons win their games. And then in Week 17... Saints still beat the Panthers. That helps the 49ers out. The Vikings beat the Bears. That helps out Seattle. The Eagles beat the Giants. That helps out Seattle. The Buccaneers beat the Falcons. That one crosses out because Seattle and San Francisco both beat Tampa. So that game's irrelevant in that regard. It would really help if the Falcons won because that would help Seattle. But the Rams beat the Cardinals. Both the Seahawks and Rams beat them once. So that's even. And then the Cowboys beating the Redskins. That would actually help the... um, 49ers if the Redskins could somehow pull off a win but we're assuming the Cowboys are trying to win a division title there so they win that game if all of those things happen then Seattle would still win the strength of victory even with the 49ers beating them it would be 84 to 83 Seattle even if they got those 12 extra points Seattle would get one 
because, and this is ironic, because the 49ers already lost to the Seahawks once, so Seattle gets that extra win on their thing, so instead of it being 83-83, it's 84-83. So, under that circumstance, it wouldn't matter who wins that game, which may alter how Seattle approaches it. So, that's just one scenario, a bunch of different games. (laughs) Again, this diagram is available on Seahawk Maven. I have both these on our website. You should go check it out. And I tried to explain these as best I can. But my point is, there are ways the Seahawks can clinch before they play on that night. Assuming it's a night game between the Seahawks and 49ers, there are ways that the Seahawks can clinch regardless of outcome. But again, as Nick and I have talked about, best thing to do, just win your two games. Take care of your business, and then you don't have to worry about what other teams are doing. Yeah, just remove all mystery. Win the games that are in front of you and everything, and let the chips fall where they may. Because, like we said, you win those two games, you're at worst a first round by home playoff division champ. So just do that and and, and just take it out of all this crazy charts hands. The original Casper mattress combines multiple supportive memory foams for a quality sleep surface with the right amounts of both sink and bounce. Get $100 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash locked NFL and using locked NFL at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. If you can't visit Casper right now, you can find this and all of their offers from Locked On sponsors at LockedOnPodcast.com slash offers. Coming up next, Nick and I will revisit Seattle's defensive showing against Carolina in Sunday's victory. We'll be right back on the Locked On Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome back to Locked On Seahawks. I'm your host, Corbin Smith, along with Nick Lee. Despite the Seahawks winning on Sunday in Carolina, there was a lot of hand-wringing about the Seahawks' defense, especially in the fourth quarter, allowing the Panthers to score twice late and cut the lead to six points. Let's break down what went right and what went wrong defensively for the Seahawks in their 30-24 victory in Carolina. Nick, I think we have to discuss something that has been a problem pretty much the entire season. It was a little more understandable this week with Jadevian Clowney and Ziggy Anza being out. Uh, But once again, the pass rush, a no-show against a really underwhelming Carolina offensive line that was missing starters to go with it. Yeah, the Seahawks had one sack and three quarterback hits all game long. And that's comparing to the Carolina Panthers who had three sacks and seven quarterback hits on Russell Wilson. Um, no Seahawks defender had more than one quarterback hits. And again, yes, the, your two premier pass rushers on the shelf doesn't help. But it's looking more and more like that stretch against the 49ers and the Eagles was more the anomaly, more the exception than the rule. I think that that uh, was just a good stretch where they had a bit of momentum. But now that's it looks like they're going back to where the norm. I think the Seahawks are going to have to figure out a way to win games without a an average to mediocre pass rush because that's the, the 49ers or excuse me the the Panthers could be hacked and they they just didn't take advantage of that I I don't think that the Seahawks didn't have Jadavion Clowney against the Eagles and that worked just just fine um guys guys rose to the occasion and that, that did not happen here against a worse Carolina Panthers team in my opinion I know the, the Eagles were banged up but as far as overall team depth I thought I think the Eagles are a much better team so I, I was really disappointed that the Seahawks are still continually in the back third of the league in in past rush and I don't see that improving now we're two games away from the season being over and the playoffs starting and if you have a pass rush like you did on Sunday in Carolina in a playoff game you're putting yourself in a real tough spot 
Now, I will say this. I, I agree with you. Obviously, the pass rush was a major concern again because they should have more production against an offensive line like Carolina. But the Panthers were getting the football out of Kyle Allen's hands really quickly most of the time. A lot of dump-offs to Christian McCaffrey, which that's good offense. Their whole offense. If have, <laughs> yeah, if you have Christian McCaffrey, that's good offense. And they have a couple other uh, fast receivers they can get the ball to. Curtis Samuel, they were getting the ball to a lot really quickly. So Jaron Reed was talking about this in the locker room after the game. It gets really frustrating because he was one of the guys that had a quarterback hit that actually led to K.J. Wright's second interception. Uh, they just weren't able to get to Kyle Allen a lot, but a lot of it had to do with the fact they didn't have time to get there. They were getting rid of the football so quickly. So while I think it's a concern, it has been most of the season, I do think considering the health issues, not having Clownsy and Anza, plus the fact Carolina just came out with a game plan that seemed to be built around get the football out of Kyle Allen's hand quickly. Don't let him hold on to it because we saw what happened when he holds on to it too long. He throws interceptions. So they wanted There's to get the reason the why he's not playing next week. Yeah, they wanted to get the ball out of his hands quickly, get it to McCaffrey, get it to DJ Moore, Curtis Samuel, and that's what they did. They mitigated the pass rush to an extent and helped their offensive line in that way, but it also stalled out their offense for most of the game until, of course, the fourth quarter when the Seahawks were playing with pretty much their preseason defense out there on the field. Yeah, that was probably the most concerning thing for the majority of Seahawks fans, just scrolling Seahawks Twitter during that time, which was, uh, that's always, you know, a calm, collected, temperamental place, you know, really serene and just and just a calm said, no, right. they went from a 30 to 10 blowout to needing a critical third and 11 conversion on offense to prevent the Panthers from a chance to win the game. <laughs> um, and it was certainly concerning to watch them score two touchdowns in less than four minutes of game time. Because you think, you know, you're up 30 to 10, you give them the ball back. Okay, if they score a touchdown, fine, but it's probably going to take them four, five, six minutes to do so. And even if they if they do, you give the ball back to them again and hopefully it takes them another two, three minutes. No, one of those drives was, I believe, like a minute and 11 seconds. I mean, that was just the coverage got soft. And all of a sudden, uh, McCaffrey and DJ Moore and Curtis Samuel all of a sudden had 10-plus yards of space. And the, everything just got soft, and the Seahawks got on their heels. And and I don't know if it's a it's a mindset thing where they just say, "Hey, we got a twenty point lead, we can give up a score and still be okay," or if it's a coaching thing or a scheme thing where they change coverages. I, I was listening to Jake Heaps break it down um, on the radio this morning and or yesterday, and and he was saying that there was a clear clear difference in game plan um, towards the end of the game, which I don't know if it's concerning or if it's just uh, you know make them you can dink and dunk them to death with not giving up the big play. I, I understand that, but. There, there, there's got to be. They some were giving up big here. plays, though. It wasn't they, like they were doing five to ten yarders, right. and just Moving down the field, like they were picking up fifteen, twenty yard chunk plays. Yeah, there, there, so I understand if you're trying to keep the hard shell on the defense, but yeah, there was no shell. It was really frustrating to watch them. All of a sudden, I'm sitting there with my feet up, like, "Hey, thirty to 10, My wife's like, "Oh yeah, Seahawks got this under control." I start making dinner and. And uh, all of a sudden, <laughs> it becomes 30 to 24, and and everyone starts puckering when you need a third and 11 conversion. And luckily, you have an MVP candidate throwing to a should-be Pro Bowler to convert and ice the game. Otherwise, who knows what we're talking about today? Yeah, I thought the coverage got really soft those two drives, and maybe part of it's just Ken Norton Jr. and Pete Carroll were not super confident with who they had on the field. I mean, there was at one point in those last two drives, after Quandre Diggs and Bobby Wagner were both out of the game with ankle injuries, where you had Ben Burkirvan, you had Shaquem Griffin, Cody Barton as your linebackers. There was a couple plays that Wright wasn't on the field. 
So you had those three as your linebackers. You didn't have Clowney or Anza rushing the, the pass. for the preseason. Rasheem Green and LJ Collier and Quentin Jefferson mainly as your ends in there. And then in the secondary, you had Akeem King replacing Shaquille Griffin. You had Lano Hill back there replacing Quandre Diggs. So they were missing a ton of starters. More than half their starting lineup was not in the game. So... I can understand maybe where the coaches were coming from there. There was concern about trying to communicate and run uh, different schemes. They were probably just trying to make it as simple as possible with all the new guys rotating in there. But they made it so easy for Carolina to drive up and down the field. And it looked to me like there were a couple plays they were playing a really loose Tampa 2 where they had Cody Barton dropping back into the middle third and there was just huge openings over by the sideline and Kyle Allen, even Kyle Allen who'd struggled all game long to throw the football more than five yards, even he was completing balls downfield. At that point, the Panthers really had all the momentum, and it was suddenly a six-point game. But I think it's worth noting the injuries were a big factor there. When Bobby Wagner left the game, they were giving up less than five yards per play. The 16 plays after he left the game, they were giving up almost 11 yards per play. It was a dramatically different situation. Obviously, having some of the other starters out impacts that as well. But I want to emphasize... What a big deal it is. I know Bobby Wagner, there's a chance he's not 100%. He might be playing at 75 80%, but I would still rather have that on the field than not having him there at all. And you could see the impact of just not having his leadership skills out there. And that's nothing against Cody Barton. I think he's going to be able to handle those communication skills, but this was the first time he had done that in an NFL regular season game. And with all the other new pieces that were in there, I guess I can give them a little bit of a pass on this one. It's not the Vikings game where they let the Vikings back in and it was distressing. This one, I get it with all the pieces that were in there. Yeah, and I, I, I do understand there's that there's two sides of the coin of that fourth quarter letdown. The injuries certainly played a role. Quandre Diggs is a big concern. That would be a huge loss to the secondary, um, who improved dramatically with him in the lineup the, the last half of the season. Um, you saw, as soon as that the 49ers game started, you noticed a clear difference in that secondary, adding Diggs to the lineup. And if he can't go moving forward, and hopefully... I'm almost saying don't play him in the Cardinals game. Every, like we just broke down in the second quarter, each of these two games are very important, even against the Cardinals. But if he's not, if he's at 50, 60 percent, I'd rather have, you know, yeah, Lano Hill back there for one game against the Cardinals. If if that means Dig is 80, Digs is 85, 90 percent for the Niners game, and maybe close to 100 percent for the playoffs. Well, no one's at 100 percent for the playoffs, but you know what I mean. Um, so losing Quandre Diggs, by and large, it would be a, a big loss. It would be. I I do think we need to point out there were a lot of positives in this game defensively because you take out those two late touchdowns. It was 30 to 10. They had limited the Panthers to 10 points and the Panthers do have one of the most dynamic weapons in the entire league in Christian McCaffrey. They didn't stop him and Pete Carroll made that clear after the game in his press conference. Somebody asked him what was the the scheming or strategy you did to stop Christian McCaffrey and he basically said well it sure didn't look like we did anything but uh, they held him to less than 100 yards rush it was actually the eighth uh, most yards he had had in a game this year so that's fairly decent he was basically their entire offense they didn't have a lot going till late in the game when DJ Moore and Curtis Samuel started catching the football 
4.5 yards per carry. You will take that against Christian McCaffrey unless he's at like 200 yards and he just ran the ball like 50 times. Uh, but he'd have to earn his yardage then. You will take that against McCaffrey, who had 8.4 yards per carry and 117 rushing yards against the mighty 49ers defense. So while they didn't stop him, I think they did a decent job slowing him down. The only thing that was frustrating was how many times he was getting the ball on screens and there was nobody nearby. Like, didn't you know that was their offense at this point? Yeah, I remember tweeting like, okay, can we just not give Christian McCaffrey 10 plus yards of space? Like, that would be great. So let's just... I know that they have quarterback spies. Is it possible to just have a Christian McCaffrey spy? Because <laughs> that's all that they really need to stop the Panthers' offense. And it was maddening towards the end of the game. I know, that, like we just mentioned, they were pretty depleted on defense. But he was just slicing and dicing through. But this is the positives. And, yes, it could have been much worse. He had, he just destroyed the 49ers. He's had several games well over 200 all-purpose yards. And he I think he had around 160 this time. Um, and he certainly has done worse against teams or done better um, for him against other teams this year. Like, like you mentioned, that was only his eighth best rushing game of the whole season. So um, the Seahawks did a pretty good job of containing him. Yes. There's a few football players in the NFL where you just hope to slow him down. Like, like Lamar Jackson, you're never going to stop Lamar Jackson if, if they're on this train, but at least slow him down and limit him in what he can do. And sometimes, and that's what the Seahawks I did. I think they did for the most part there was slow him down and and in key spots um, and stop him at briefly. <laughs> the second thing I think was was really big was the, the the turnovers, the three turnovers, the three interceptions, and at least two of those interceptions really clearly saved points. And who knows where this game goes if Carolina at least gets a field goal and a touchdown or heck, both two touchdowns from those two interceptions because especially towards the end of the half, they were really driving and I thought they were going to score um, some easy points before Bobby Wagner's interception. So at least two of those interceptions really changed the tide of this of this uh, final score. Yeah, and then you look at that sequence in the second half where K.J. Wright had two interceptions, uh, consecutive drives really just a couple minutes apart, and, and in the middle, Josh Gordon trying to play quarterback and throwing his interception, so it was a turnover fest, but K.J. Wright was a ball magnet. Now, as far as making plays after the catch, well, uh, that leaves something to be desired a little bit. I was laughing, laughing to somebody else in the press box, and as soon as he picked the first one, he goes, he's going to score! He's going to take it to the end zone. Two steps later, he's on the ground, and... uh as great as K.J. Wright has played, that is not a strength for him at this point. He's really never been an elite athlete, and now at this stage of his career, uh, he's lost another step or two, but he's still extremely instinctive and has great ball skills. Even though he only had three interceptions in his career before this, he had a career high in pass deflections going into this game. So he's been very active getting his hands on the football, gets two interceptions. They also had another one that could have been a pick, but Ugo Amadi, I'm going to give credit to Christian McCaffrey. He just punched the ball out before Amadi had secured it. That would have been a pick six if he was able to secure it. So they were really ball hawking against Kyle Allen, and that's another reason that Kyle Allen is not going to be starting for the Panthers, it looks like, for the last two games. And they're going to go with their rookie, Will Greer, instead. That's their seventh game this year with three or more takeaways, and I believe they now have 16 takeaways in their last five games. That is just wow. insane. I mean, they have, they've been doing it against good teams and bad teams. They're just taking the football away left and right, and Pete Carroll is loving it. And unfortunately, they did give the ball up on that turnover, that uh, interception by Josh Gordon, but they are clearly dominating the turnover battle week in and week out, allowed 10 points through 55 minutes. So 
before those injuries, especially the one to Wagner, uh, they were getting the job done. They were making the stops they needed to. Cody Barton had 10 tackles, a, a really good chance. I know they didn't play well, but a really good chance to get those young guys some valuable experience. And maybe that's my biggest takeaway from here. Yes, they gave up two touchdowns, but it looked to me like a very simplified defensive game plan. And I'd rather those kids take their lumps against a crappy team like the Panthers. No offense, Carolina, but you're crappy to take those lumps against a team like that than have them thrust into a playoff game for an injured player and they haven't played at all. At least now they've gotten some experience and they've gotten some reps under their belt. Yeah, they did enough to win. And they're not going to pitch shutouts. It's it's for me, like you all know, I'm a baseball guy. And you're always going to have pitching or hitting. It's very rare that teams are humming as hitting and pitching both. As long as one's humming and the other one does enough to win and not get in the way, <laughs> then you're going to be okay. And you're probably going to decently go far in the playoffs. And I think with the Seahawks, um, they, they've each side has carried them for a few games. But the, with how the offense looks, it looks like the offense got on track. I, I know this is a defensive segment, but that's that, that's a huge plus to get that offense humming once more heading into the playoffs. And as long as the offense is doing that, the defense is doing just enough to win. They're not dominant anymore. They're not going to sack the quarterback five, six times. It looks like they can still get turnovers without pass rush, which is very encouraging. Um, as long as they're healthy heading into the playoffs, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, the sky is falling. Seahawks are 11-3, and three, okay? They're not 11-3 and three on accident. You don't just, like, fall out of bed in the morning and go 11-3. and three. Things are going right. The, the defense is doing enough to win, and they did things in this game to seal the victory, even though it doesn't look like it in the final score. They did things between the lines, between the, the scores, that really made a difference. Yeah, they're really. I'm, they're hoping to get the best of both worlds. You get some of those young guys, some of those valuable reps that I was just talking about, and hopefully you can win a bye so that you have extra time for that defense to get healthy and you can be full strength. If they could get Diggs, Wagner, all those guys back, Clowney is going to be dealing with his injury the rest of the season, but hopefully extra rest helps him get through it. You have all those guys come back, you get the bye, you're playing in front of the 12s at CenturyLink Field. That is the ideal situation, and then you've also got your young guys prepped in case they have to play a few snaps here and there. Those guys have gotten a little bit of their lumps out of the way, and maybe they can contribute and not feel like they're just getting thrown into the fire in a postseason game. So they're hoping they get, like I said, the best of both worlds here. Make sure to follow me on Twitter at CorbinSmithNFL. You can follow Nick at NickLee51. If you'd like to be a featured sponsor for the Locked On Seahawks podcast, you can contact me, LockedSeahawks, at gmail.com. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever your preferred podcast platform is, by going to our website, LockedOnSeahawks.com. Coming up tomorrow, it's Crossover Wednesday. I will be with the Locked On Cardinals crew and we'll be breaking down the upcoming rematch in Seattle between the Cardinals and Seahawks. You won't want to miss it. Go Hawks.